The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter, and today the next passage we come to is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, and it's found in your pew Bibles on page 953. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. May God bless the reading of his word. All right. Thank you, Donna. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are grateful for this time grateful for your word. And Father, we understand from Hebrews chapter 4 that your word is living and active. So may it be living and active in our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When someone becomes a Christian, uh, one of the things that God imparts to them is joy. And I think we can confidently say that there's no joy in life like that joy. The joy of having our sins forgiven and entering into a relationship with God, being adopted even into God's family, and having the hope of eternal life. And yet throughout our lives, there are things that can hinder us from experiencing that joy. Much like clouds that block our view of the sun. And maybe that's you this morning. You know, maybe you're under the cloud of stress or anxiety about a particular situation. Or maybe you're under the cloud of depression or grief or financial hardship. Or maybe you're experiencing loneliness or suffering from a health ailment, or struggling with a particular sin. Maybe you've been mistreated by someone. Or maybe the news headlines we've been seeing recently are just weighing heavily on you. There are so many different kinds of earthly trials and concerns that we often face that function as clouds blocking our view of the sun and robbing us of the joy that's rightfully ours in Jesus. So that's why I'm so thankful uh, for the passage of Scripture we'll be looking at today, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. In these three verses, Peter takes us high above those clouds of our earthly difficulties and directs our gaze toward the glorious truths of the gospel that fuel our joy. Peter originally uh, wrote these words to Christians living in 
uh, the nation that is now called Turkey, who were suffering intense persecution for their faith and who, like us, were prone to allow the clouds of earthly difficulties to close in on them and cause them to lose sight of these precious gospel truths. And so Peter sought to encourage them by reminding them of these truths. Uh, I love what the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon has to say about these verses. He writes, Our apostle cheers these troubled hearts by exciting them to a song of praise. I might almost entitle these three verses a New Testament psalm. They are stanzas of a majestic song. You have here a delightful hymn. It scarcely needs to be turned into verse. It is in itself essentially poetry already. In these three verses, we have a string of pearls, a necklace of diamonds, a cabinet of jewels. Nay, the comparisons are poor. We have something far better than all the riches of the world can ever typify. And so with Spurgeon's words in mind, I'd like to open up this cabinet of jewels with you this morning and examine the exquisite pieces of jewelry that we find here one by one. Everything in these verses revolves around the idea that we find in verse 3 of a living hope. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we've been born again to a living hope. Now, when the New Testament speaks of our hope as Christians, it's using the word hope in a way that's much different than the way that we typically use that word hope in our regular day-to-day conversations. Like usually when we say that we're hoping for something, we mean that we want something to happen that in reality, may or may not happen. Right? So we might say, I hope, like the Steelers win the football game. Right? In reality, we understand that they may or may not win the football game. If it were the Pirates, we'd say probably not. Um, and we're simply saying that we want them to win. Yet when the New Testament speaks of the word, uh, of our future hope, It's referring to the confident expectation that we have of something that's sure to happen. We are looking forward with eager anticipation and joyful expectancy to a future in heaven that couldn't be more sure. That's the hope we have as Christians. And Peter refers to it as a living hope. In the sense, uh, living in the sense that it's just full of life and vitality. It's a hope that's much different than the empty and vain hopes that people have all around us. You know, many times people put their hope in something and end up being disappointed. Like maybe they'll put their hope in their career to you know, provide for them the sense of fulfillment that in reality is found in God alone. And well, they'll end up disappointed when their career doesn't do for them what they hoped it would do for them. Or maybe they put their hope in their spouse 
to provide them with that sense of fulfillment. Or maybe they're kids. Or uh, perhaps they have a, some kind of vision for this world becoming a wonderful utopia of sorts. And, and they believe that if they can just vote the right political leaders into office, they can make this world into that utopia. So there are all kinds of different things, earthly things, that people often put their hope in only to end up being disappointed. Yet in contrast to all these empty and vain hopes, we as Christians have a living hope. And the distinctive feature of this living hope is that it's capable of withstanding whatever storms and trials we face in life which is precisely the point Peter's making in these verses. Christians have a living hope for the future that transcends any suffering we might face in the present. And that's the main idea of these verses. Christians have a living hope for the future that transcends any suffering we might face in the present. In fact, not only does our present suffering not diminish our hope, it should actually have the effect of bolstering our hope by encouraging us to focus all the more on the incomparable blessings that await us in the future. And as we look at these three verses in 1 Peter 1, we can observe three features of the hope God gives us, the foundation of our hope, the nature of our hope, and the certainty of our hopes. So I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning going over those three features. First, the foundation of our hope. And we see in verse 3 that there are actually several elements that comprise this foundation. Peter writes that according to his great mercy, he, that would be God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. Now, the first thing to notice in this verse is that the only reason we have this living hope is because of the mercy of God. Like, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it. Instead, truth be told, the only thing we actually deserve is wrath and judgment because of our rebellion against a holy God. And so right here at the outset, let's just get rid of any idea that we're entitled to anything better than that. However, according to his great mercy, it says, God saw our need. He came to our rescue. Peter then writes that God has caused us to be born again. This is a reference to the spiritual transformation that takes place in a person's heart at conversion. So just like... In a physical birth, a new person enters the world. Well, that's what happens spiritually within a person's heart when they become a Christian. There's a change that takes place in their heart that's so radical, it's as if they've been born a second time. They are born again. And as Peter points out, uh, this new birth results in us obtaining a hope. Right? The living hope for the future that we never had before. The hope of being with God and worshiping at God's feet for all eternity. And yet, as Peter goes on to say, the only reason any of this is possible is because of the resurrection of Jesus 
Christ from the dead. Of course, to speak of the resurrection of Jesus implies that he died. Uh, More specifically, he was crucified. And the reason that Jesus was crucified was to pay for our sins. We've already said that our sins deserve God's judgment. They even cried out for God's judgment. And yet Jesus bore that judgment in our place on the cross. Like the judgment came down on him, so it wouldn't have to come down on us. And then after Jesus died, he, of course, resurrected from the dead. And the reason Peter emphasizes Jesus' resurrection in this verse is because it's his resurrection in particular that's linked with what happens to us as we're raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. So just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead three days after his crucifixion, we are spiritually raised from the dead at conversion. Not only that, Jesus' resurrection also gives us a foretaste of the ultimate resurrection that we'll experience in the future. As our physical bodies are physically resurrected from the dead, reunited with our souls, and enter into our glorious eternal existence in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, So you might say that Jesus was like the prototype, kind of like the prototype of a car or something like that. I'm sure we've all seen pictures of the shiny new prototypes that uh, automakers love to display in various auto shows all around the world. The point of those prototypes is to show us what's to come. And that's the point of the resurrection as well. Like in the resurrection of Jesus, God was displaying to the world what's in store for his people. The resurrection is a picture of what God will do with countless others all around the world when he raises them up and gives them glorified resurrection bodies one day. You can read 1 Corinthians 15 if you want more information about that. And so those are the things that comprise the foundation of our hope. We've seen the great mercy of God, the new birth, we've experienced that conversion, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Then having identified these various elements that comprise the foundation of our hope, Peter goes on to describe the nature of our hope. Look at verse 4. Peter says that we're looking forward to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, an inheritance, of course, is an ordinary conversation. It refers to wealth that someone who dies leaves to those they care about. Wealth that's passed down from one generation to the next. And it's also a word, this word inheritance, it's used in the Old Testament to refer to the land that God gives to the nation of Israel. In numerous places, that land is called their inheritance. And I think we can all agree that receiving an inheritance is a great thing, right? Like if you received a letter in the mail this week, let's say, from a reputable attorney informing you that some relative that you didn't even know you had died and left you a small fortune, I'm guessing you would be pretty happy about receiving that inheritance. And yet, as great as an earthly inheritance can be, 
the heavenly inheritance that Peter describes in these verses is infinitely superior because it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Notice that all three of these terms are an attempt to help us understand what this inheritance is by telling us what it isn't. As one commentator named David Helm writes, evidently, Peter finds it difficult to find words that do justice in capturing the greatness of this future inheritance. In describing it, he can do no better than use three words that tell us what it is not. So let's look at those three words. Uh, First, Peter says, our inheritance is imperishable. As you know, we use the word perishable oftentimes to refer to grocery items that will quickly go bad if they're not refrigerated. Uh, Milk, for example, is perishable. And even if you do put it in the fridge, it'll still go bad within a week or two. By contrast, then, for something to be imperishable means that it'll never go bad. It's permanent. It can't be spoiled or ruined or destroyed. In addition, Peter says, our inheritance is undefiled. It's entirely pure and free from anything that would pollute or contaminate it. And uh, this is a quality that's kind of difficult uh, for us to imagine because we live in a world in which everything has been affected in some way, by the fall. That is, by human rebellion and the consequences of that rebellion in the entire created order. Everything we've ever known is stained and polluted and, we might say, defiled by sin. There's no such thing as a blessing that we enjoy on this side of heaven that doesn't have at least something that's just not so great about it, you know? So that, that exotic vacation might be amazing in many ways, but, you know, you're usually dealing with jet lag. Um, or uh, maybe that new career is a wonderful job, but, you know, there's that one person in the, that you work with that just rubs you the wrong way. Um, a new baby is a phenomenal blessing, yet you are going to be wiping their butt for the next two years, right? So even the best earthly blessings are uh, diminished or defiled in certain ways, right? Those new babies especially, some of those diapers are severely defiled, I would say. Uh, Yet Peter teaches here that our heavenly inheritance will be strikingly different from anything we've experienced on this earth in that it'll be undefiled. And then finally, Peter says, our inheritance is unfading. That word unfading uh, translates a Greek word that was used in secular Greek literature to refer to a flower that would never fade or wither or die. Uh, It was in mythology. And it, it speaks of something that never loses its luster or magnificence. I remember how when I was a a young child, I really liked uh, getting new shoes. And I remember the, these one pair of shoes I got, I really liked them. They had a picture of Spider-Man on them. They, they were all shiny, and, and Spider-Man was like shooting his web out. And man, they were really cool. And uh, 
I, I loved him so much. I would actually, I would kind of walk like this so I wouldn't like put a crease in the shoes prematurely. You know, I was trying to get as most as I could out of it. I'd also clean them on a regular basis. You know, that's just basic new shoe maintenance, I guess. But the day finally came when I discovered a scuff mark on one of those shoes. It was a sad day. It was a big mark, too. It wasn't anything small. It was way too big for me to wipe it off. And uh, it really ruined my whole day. But uh, as you get older, you just kind of figure out that's, that's just what happens, right? New shoes become old shoes. New cars become old cars. New furniture becomes old furniture. Everything on this earth inevitably fades away. And yet Peter says here that our heavenly inheritance is unfading. Its splendor and magnificence won't ever deteriorate. And the joy and delight we experience there won't ever diminish. And so that's the nature of our inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And as we consider these three qualities of our heavenly inheritance, it's difficult to escape the question of why we'd ever spend our lives pursuing anything else, right? Like, why would we ever focus on what's perishable, defiled, and fading when God set before us an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? How crazy would that be? And yet, for whatever reason, it seems like that's exactly what so many people do. Losing sight of what's eternal in their pursuit of what's temporary. And so hopefully Peter's words here are an encouragement for us not to be so short-sighted. But instead, and to borrow a phrase from Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, to lay up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. Then finally, after Peter speaks of the foundation of our hope and then of the nature of our hope... He turns his attention to the certainty of our hope. Uh, At the end of verse 4, he tells us that our inheritance, that that he's just said, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This same inheritance is also kept in heaven for us. Uh, The Greek word translated as kept there is also translated elsewhere in the New Testament as guarded. So just as guards uh, would uh, carefully watch over whatever or whomever is entrusted to their care, God is likewise carefully watching over our heavenly inheritance. We then read in verse 5 that believers, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, this word translated as guarded is actually a different one, but it means more or less the same thing. God is guarding his people for their future inheritance, protecting them from anything that threatens to derail them from their journey heavenward. And so we find two parallel truths in this passage. God is guarding our inheritance for us, and he's also guarding us for our inheritance. Our future, brothers and sisters, just couldn't be more secure. And it's interesting to observe uh, the word Peter uses here in verse 5 to refer to our future. Now, back in verse 3, he referred to 
our future as our hope, right? Our living hope. Then in verse 4, he referred to it as our inheritance. And now in verse 5, he uses the word salvation to refer to it. He says, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation is a word that simply means rescue or deliverance. And we typically use the word salvation to refer to the point in time when someone puts their faith in Jesus and is born again and experiences forgiveness of their sins. So essentially, their conversion. So when we talk about a person being saved, uh, typically we mean that they are converted. And yet the New Testament actually uses the word salvation much more broadly than we often use that term. In the New Testament, there's actually more than one way and more than one sense in which a person is saved from their sin. The first way is indeed the way we typically use the word salvation uh, as a reference to someone being forgiven of their sin at conversion. So we might speak of that as being saved from the penalty of sin. Yet the New Testament also uses the word salvation to refer to a process that continues throughout the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, for example, Paul describes Christians as those, quote, who are being saved. That is, they're in the process of being saved from their sin. Essentially, they're growing in godliness and other Christian virtues. So we might speak of this as being saved from the power of sin. So we were saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And then the third way is the way Peter's using the term here in our main passage. He speaks of us being saved saved or obtaining salvation at some point in the future. And it's pretty clear, I think, that he's talking about the return of Christ and our entrance into heavenly glory. So essentially, the word salvation here is a reference to heaven and us being saved from the very presence of sin. So that's the range of meaning of salvation in the New Testament. A past salvation from the penalty of sin at conversion an ongoing salvation from the power of sin throughout the Christian life, and then a future salvation from the presence of sin when we enter heaven. And again, it's salvation in this last sense that Peter's speaking of here. And he's speaking of how certain and secure our salvation is. He says it's being kept in heaven for us and that we are being guarded through faith for it. This means that nothing can stand in the way of us experiencing this salvation one day. Uh, This is what's often known in theological studies as the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The biblical teaching that true Christians will persevere in their faith all the way to heaven. And the reason they'll persevere, every single one of them, is because God will make sure they persevere. They won't be able to turn away from God in any definitive sense, or as we might say, lose their salvation. And there are some 
who would disagree with me on that, very good Christians who would disagree, but I actually think it's clear enough in the Bible. In addition to what Peter writes in our main passage, consider what Jesus says in John 10, 28. Speaking of Christians, he states, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And in Philippians 1, 6, Paul tells the, the Christians of Philippi that he who began a good work in you, right, that would be God, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Praise God, right? He won't fail to complete the good work in us. He's begun. And in Jude 24, God's described as him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory. And then perhaps the clearest passage of all is Romans 8.30. Paul writes, And those whom he, God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I know there are a lot of theological terms in that verse, but just look at the end of it. Those whom God justified, he also glorified. See that? Every single person who is justified or declared righteous at conversion is also glorified in heaven. Like, there's no attrition. <laughs> like, nobody drops out or slips through the cracks between justification and glorification. Every single one of the justified is also among the glorified. And so those are just some of the verses that support what we read back in verse 5 of our main passage. And they give us incredible assurance that our future is secure. Like this living hope we've been talking about is also a sure hope, a certain hope, a hope that won't be disappointed. Now, of course, this should never lead us to be presumptuous about our salvation. Like, if you think you're a Christian but have no interest in following Jesus and obeying Jesus in every aspect of your life, then you might want to think again. Because it's possible to think you've become a Christian and yet be self-deceived the whole time. But for those of us who have experienced genuine conversion, as evidenced by the fact that there's been a genuine change in our way of living, then we can have incredible peace and confidence as we look toward the future. Unlike so many of the earthly hopes we have that are so often disappointed, this hope is one that won't be disappointed. So let me encourage you, no matter what you're facing, right now, to let these truths that Peter shares in these verses sink deep into your soul. As I mentioned at the beginning, we you know, have this tendency many times to allow the clouds of our earthly circumstances to close in on us and to block out these glorious truths of the gospel that we hold so dear. So don't let that happen. Instead, maybe consider going home this afternoon and just letting your mind marinate in these truths. You know, if you really 
want to live in light of these things and have a very high level of awareness of the living hope that we have in Jesus and, and experience the, the joy and the confidence that come from that, understand that you don't get there just by opening your Bible for five minutes a day and reading a few verses real quick before you rush out the door and get on with your day. Right? You've got to let your mind really marinate in these things. Now, as you know, when, when you're marinating something, like maybe a steak, let's say, you, you can't just let the steak soak in the marinade for a few minutes and then expect it to be full of that flavor. It doesn't work like that. You, you've got to give the steak some time, give the marinade some time to soak into that steak. And likewise, if you want these truths that we've seen in 1 Peter to really have time to soak into your soul, it doesn't happen in five minutes a day. It requires some time to let your mind marinate in these things and let these things soak in. Only then will you find the living hope that Peter speaks of here becoming more and more of a reality in your life. And make no mistake, having this hope for the future changes everything about the way you approach the present. It enables you to have a joy, even in the midst of earthly difficulty, and a peace, even in the midst of earthly uncertainty. It also has a profound effect, even on our most, the, the most basic disposition of our heart as we go throughout a typical day. It transforms us into a different person. Maybe you're here this morning and have never experienced this hope at all. If you were to be completely honest with yourself, you'd have to admit that you really don't have any transcendent hope. You've just put your hope in various earthly things, and they've all disappointed you. If that's you, I want you to know that before you leave here today, you can have a hope that is real, endurable, and that rises above whatever situation in life you might be facing. The living hope that Peter talks about here in 1 Peter 1. That hope is found exclusively in Jesus, and he offers it to everyone who will turn their life over to him and put their trust in him to save them from their sins. So if you haven't yet done that, my question is, will you do that even before you leave this morning?